Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rise Together. Uh, by popular demand, we are doing Ask Dave Anything. Uh, ask a husband anything, ask a male human anything, ask a tall guy uh, anything, ask a CEO anything, ask the father of three boys anything, ask a person who's been through foster care anything, ask an adoptive father anything, ask a runner anything. Go ahead and just ask your question. I uh, threw up on social media the suggestion that today I would be in our podcast studio recording this man's perspective on love, marriage, growth, as well as, uh, frankly, just getting my perspective on uh, basically anything. And y'all have a lot of questions. I mean, we got to talk. Y'all have a lot of questions. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I will say, um, man, it makes me excited to have a book coming out that's going to speak into me having been in a place where I was not excited about Rachel reaching for uh, some of what she was reaching for while I was stuck because, man, there were a lot of comments or questions about how do I get my partner who is not as motivated about reaching for something exceptional to want this thing that I want, but uh, he or she does not. So, um, man, I can relate to that. I'm excited about uh, being able to talk to you about it when my book comes out. But um, I want to start by suggesting one thing that should be clear to everyone, and I'm just not sure that it is. I am not a licensed therapist. I am not a professional. My name is Dave that is like that. Those are my qualifications. I mean, one person, one of you listeners, I give you credit. You actually asked the question in the Ask Dave Anything. What are your qualifications? Well, Sheila, I am unqualified. Uh, I mean, my qualifications are I have a podcast and I've lived some life and I maybe unlike most humans, uh, especially most dudes, uh, I'm comfortable being pretty honest about the things that I have a perspective on. And that's the extent of my qualifications. So if a question that you asked was probably better posed to a professionally licensed therapist or a doctor or an astrophysicist or a mechanic, uh, because I'm not those things, either I'm not going to wade into it, or if I dabble in it, uh, recognize that I'm not a pro. Uh, and if you, you know, hear something that, man, makes you want to tug on that thread a little bit, do it with a professional who's actually licensed and qualified. With all those disclaimers out of the way, let's get into it. Let's go. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis. And I'm Dave Hollis. And we're married. For like 15 years. And we have four kids. That's like a thousand kids. We've been foster parents to four kids as well. And we're running a business together. That's a lot of things. It is a lot of things. But we know that it's possible to have an exceptional relationship regardless of the stresses you have in your life. So if you want some tips and tricks on how we get through all the things, this is Rise Together. Now, I will let you know, listeners, there were some questions that were um, a little bit more funny, right? Some people were having a little bit of fun, and there were a lot of questions that were totally serious. Um, some people, many people, 
uh, on the serious questions. We're asking questions about something that was super sensitive. So I think I, I came into this thinking that I would share the name of who asked the question, and then I realized that I don't want to be the guy who ruins Christmas. I don't want to be the guy that ruins your relationship by outing you for having a question about your partner not being awesome. So I'm just not going to suggest anybody ask these questions. Know, though, that they are all 100% real questions that were submitted by you, the listener. If you hear your question and you want to make sure people know that you asked it, man, grab an audio clip out of this podcast, put it up on the interwebs, and tell everyone that it was yours. Question number one. What are some things you can do during the dating stage to prepare for marriage? Man, good question. I can tell you this. We did not actually do enough preparation prior to getting married because we were young and dumb, super naive about what it even meant to cohabitate and be married. And I think in some uh, weird way, there was some hubris, certainly on my side, uh, and I'm going to guess a little bit for Rachel too, of us thinking we were all grown up, that we had it figured out. Uh, if I could go back and counsel our not yet married selves, um, we did in our premarital work, a little bit of a personality diagnostic. We did a disc test to understand, you know, how we were wired, but we did, we just barely scratched the surface. Uh, we have uh, on this podcast been such advocates for things like Enneagram, things like love languages or the languages of apology, uh, doing more of that work so that we could understand how each of us give and receive love, uh, doing more of that work to understand how our personalities pair and where our personalities have things that can tip into being uh, or becoming barriers for us having intimacy or the listening skills that actually afford resolution or any of those things, man, it's like getting an answer key, getting an answer key to how you're wired. You know, like I was super skeptical to many of the tools that we now like embrace on an everyday basis and use not just in our relationship, but in our attempts to connect well with the leaders on our teams and, uh, you know, with the people we love in our lives. Um, if I, if I could go back, I mean, I'd tell us, invest more time in those things. That's one. Two, I would have had a longer conversation about roles, like role expectation. When uh, you come into being married, you, uh, in many ways, at least this is the experience for me, I took the model of the parents, uh, of, I, I took the model of my family of origin as a proxy for how married couples do married life. And that, you know, like, and combined with a little bit of like how married life was portrayed in movies and how the couples that I also looked up to as mentors did married life. And I, so I took those experiences and I brought them in as what I expected our married life to be. And the difference between how my parents were married, how couples on TV or movies were married, how the other couples that were grown-up humans when I was a smaller human modeled being married, and how marriage was going to be for me, none of those other people were me and Rachel. And so I made the mistake of 
taking the things that worked in their relationships and thinking that they would work in ours without actually having a really detailed conversation about some of those assumptions. So when I, having been one of four kids raised by a mom who took on that hardest job in the universe, staying at home to raise those four kids, there were things that my mom did as the female head of household that I put on Rachel without having had a conversation with Rachel. And it just created the kind of early in life, early in marriage friction when it was not the thing role-wise she was necessarily up for or interested in. And it just required us to have harder conversations because of some of the pre-assumptions I'd made coming into the relationship. If I just had had a conversation of, hey, who do you think cooks in marriage? <laughs> who do you think is responsible for taking care of housework in marriage? Like the clarity I have now on whose responsibility it is to take care of our home, I am 100% responsible. She is 100% responsible. Who is responsible for taking care of our children? I am 100% responsible. She is 100% responsible. We don't approach things in our marriage, in our home, in our raising of our kids as halves. Oh, I'm as responsible as her. I am, but it's not 50-50. It's 100-100. And if we'd had that conversation prior to getting married, man, we would have avoided a lot of the premarital expectations, setting traps for our post-being married selves. All right. Question number two. What tips and tricks do you have when it comes to discipline with your kiddos? Any particular or certain things you have that have proven to work through the years, always looking for ideas. Uh, man, great question. Disciplining kids is a really interesting thing because, uh, one, again, I think a lot of times, I, I don't want to say a lot of times, I'm just going to speak from my own personal experience. For both of us, Discipline in your family of origin was the way you learned how discipline worked for children. And the thing you have to figure out as a parent, it turns out, is which of the capital T truths, which of the practices, the habits, the routines, the ways of working from your family of origin you decide are appropriate or not appropriate for you operating your house. And one of the things that's interesting for me coming out of a household where, uh, you know, like, not that we were spanked often, but I think it's maybe even more of a generational thing. Like, kids were spanked when I was younger, and we don't spank our kids. Um, and I don't know if that's because cultural differences or something that was, you know, read in a psychology, sociology book, but like we just decided that's not a thing that we're going to do. But also when I was growing up, discipline, at least from my perspective, felt like it was something that was universally applied to each of the four of us in my family, regardless of how we were wired. And what I can say has happened over time for us, we've come to appreciate that discipline is something that is individual by the wiring of each of our individually wired children, right? The way that I would have to discipline our oldest, who is a like very traditional firstborn achiever, 
is way different than what I have to do to, you know, approach disciplining my two and a half year old monster, cutest human in the world, Noah Hollis, uh, in part because of her age, but also in part because of her wiring, right? My middle son, my youngest son, they are each individual individuals, and each of them have completely different things that they respond to. And so, um, you know, giving someone a timeout or restricting someone from technology, those are things that you have as tools in your arsenal. And one of them, for one of my kids, is way more effective as a suggested consequence of bad behavior than the other is. And so it's, the, you know, my, my best, I think, recommendation would be know your humans, understand how they are motivated, thinking about how they're motivated, use the things that you think might best have them present in the way you'd hope, and don't apply a one-size-fits-all approach to discipline because you're probably going to have one person who responds really well to whatever that approach is and another human that just doesn't, and it'll be frustrating for you, and it may in fact just be your own darn fault for thinking that all of them would respond the same way. All right, uh, we have another question. Uh, did your kids ever do something that they shouldn't have done, but it was funny to you in a way that made it hard for you to not break into a smile slash laugh as you were trying to discipline or console them? Oh, there was a time. How many parenting conversations have started with, there was a time. Uh, there was a time when we had guests at the house and there was a keychain on the countertop that had a small thing of pepper spray on the keychain. And my youngest son, who is just naturally inquisitive, uh, he was interested in understanding the dynamics of said pepper spray thing, not realizing that it was pepper spray. And uh, now I mean, I, I can acknowledge, guess what? When people come over, we need to have a pepper spray receptacle that we put out of the reach of smaller humans. Though uh, I do think this was a lesson learned, so I'm not sure it's going to happen again. But this kid sure did spray himself in the dang cheek. Now, not in the eye. So luckily, it wasn't like the worst thing in the world. But the cheek is close to the eye. I mean, you can look on any anatomy chart. It's very close. This kid freaked out. And by the way, as he should, as he should have, because pepper spray on your cheek is no good. And he immediately ran for the pool. Ran for the pool, jumped into the pool, thought this was the idea, like th this is it, I'm gonna jump in the pool. Then one of his brothers saw some YouTube thing about getting stung by a jellyfish and that milk was an answer. Next thing you know, he's pouring milk on his face. And like the, you know, I, I wanted so badly to be able to like take care and whatever. And we were like getting ready to get into a car to go and drive to an emergency room. But I also like, maybe it makes me a monster, but like I couldn't help but kind of giggle a little bit because like 
he wasn't really that hurt. He was surprised. And the surprise, anyway, maybe we, maybe I shouldn't share this story. I sound like an asshole. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to get, I don't, don't send, I don't want your, please don't send me letters. I, I, I understand. We, we have a completely different rule in our home now about any kind of sprays, pepper spray, aerosol spray. We moved away from air freshener in the bathroom. We just, we, we use one of those, like, it looks like a mushroom that you pull up and now scents come out of it. There's, um, we're not using any kind of spray when we iron. There's, uh, there's no hairspray, no more sprays. All the sprays are gone. We got rid of all of them. All right, here's a question. I'm going to give up alcohol for last 90 days. How do you handle social situations without it? I handle social situations without alcohol so easily now, um, in part because when I made the decision to not drink, uh, if you didn't know, I've talked about it a few times now on the show, I decided to take a year off of drinking alcohol just to show myself that I could, see what it might mean for my energy level and my ability to reach for some more positive coping mechanisms and just like having a healthier constitution, doing a lot more running, leading this team better, showing up better as a dad, all the things. And uh, when I decided to do it, one of the things I had to do in making that choice was broadcast the decision to the people that I hang out with socially with an explanation of my why. Like, here's what, here's what I'm doing and here's why I'm doing it, and here's why I'm telling you. Because you now are a part of me being successful in achieving this thing that I've decided I'm doing. And so there isn't a lot of pressure now from any of my friends. Frankly, they're like, hey, our designated driver is here. I'm like, yep, here I am. I'm ready to take you around town like I'm driving Miss Daisy. Let's go. But um, that, that's one, two. I, uh, like when I first made this choice, we were just about to go on our 15 year wedding anniversary trip to Ireland where like booze was invented, I think. And I was worried about it. Like, how are we going to go and celebrate? How are we going to go and like have it not feel like somehow this choice of mine has compromised our ability to have fun? And the reality is there is an awesome non-alcoholic alternative that exists in whatever your poison has traditionally been. There's a great non-alcoholic beer, non-alcoholic wine. There's non-alcoholic champagne. You can literally get just about anything. And if you want like a Moscow mule without vodka, they'll make it and they'll frankly charge you full price for it very happily. Uh, but the bottom line is there are alternatives you got a game plan for how the people that might traditionally try and co-opt you out of your choice or sabotage your journey, you got to get them on, on your page. Explain why you're doing what you're doing and explain why you're telling them. And if they decide to try and talk you out of it, you need to stop hanging out with them, <laughs> period. You don't need friends that are going to try and talk you out of making some good choices for a last 90 days challenge. Uh, let's see. My sister and I haven't spoken to each other since last July. Over a year ago, her husband did something that I didn't agree with. As most big sisters do and say, I just spoke my mind. It damaged our relationship. And now my sister is pregnant. I want to reach out, but 
I guess I haven't because of possible rejection. I don't know where to start or what to say. So hasn't spoken to her sister since July. Oh, since July of 2019. So not that much time has gone by, but enough time has gone by that it's now awkward. She's pregnant. You have to reach out. My best advice is to uh, find a way to reword your question to ask Dave anything and just be super humble and honest about your interest in being a part of her life. Uh, you know, it, it's easy without like knowing the specificity of the detail in the, you know, thing that you're trying to have water run under the bridge for, but she's going to inevitably, as this baby continues to grow inside of her body, um, get closer and closer to a place where, man, she's really going to need you. There's a chance that as hormones uh, that tend to be a thing that come with having a baby continue to happen inside of her body, that she's going to emotionally just need to have that thing that you guys have had over the course of time. And um, the the best, you know, like the, the well, I, I guess I would, I would say this too. Like one of the things that was a real gift in our conversation with Dr. Gary Chapman on this very podcast was the like diving into the conversation around uh, the, the language of apology. Uh, I don't know that you know what your sister needs when it comes to an apology, but you might take a second and listen to that podcast. And if you, um, you know, like uh, those breadcrumbs feel interesting, then spend a second looking up the book that he wrote with a, a writing partner, I don't remember the name of the co-author, but uh, about apologies. Because, you know, for some people, they need to hear you say that you're sorry. For other people, they need to have an act that shows that you're sorry. For others, you need to uh, actually have something that, uh, you know, anyway, there's like five different things that people need an apology. To be able to come to your sister in a way that really is how she needs to hear you say that you're sorry um, would be amazing. In the absence of knowing exactly what she needs, I would just be super, super humble and honest in the sincerity of your want for her forgiveness with some declaration on your not, like some declaration of your appreciation that you've stepped in it and that you're, you know, expressing some interest to not do it again, right? What people usually want to hear is that you're actually sorry, that you understand that you've done something wrong, and that you're not actually going to do the thing that you did wrong again. Um, and try to do it. This is the like one extra little piece of uh, advice I'd give without explaining why you did it. Just saying that you're sorry, that you know you did your, that you know you did something wrong, and that you are not going to do it again without any rationalization as to why you did what you did or what it was that provoked it or what it was that she said that maybe made you think, nope, uh, without any explanation, just give the apology and see if that doesn't work. All right, here's, a, here's another question. How did you come up with the name Karen whenever you say whatever Karen or, or Pam? It kills me every time. My husband and I are trying to find out, are trying out several names and we're now trying to land on the right one. This is the kind of hard-hitting ask Dave anything question that I am here for. And the answer is, you know, Karen. Y you know. You know. And Pam, well, well Pam, you, you also know. 
Uh, no, you know what we picked? We picked a name and just stuck with it. And uh, dang it, we need to actually mix it up a little bit because there are Karen and Pams in this community that need a break. They need us to jump on like a Teresa bandwagon. Like we need to go after Julie for a little bit. You know, Julie, you know. Okay, next question. How do you refocus your relationship after a baby? Oh, man, everything's going along great. And then you have a baby. Uh, babies are amazing and super disruptive to routine. So I think the, um, the one thing I would say, the, um, it's almost like if, if you're like conscientious of how you hope to connect after the baby comes, before the baby gets there, the chances that you'll connect after the baby comes are higher. So being in an active relationship of what this baby might do to your running standard date night, to your sex drive. I mean, after you have a baby, you will not have sex for a while. So go ahead and just like prepare your hearts for that. Uh, what it might do to your body, right? Like having a baby changed both of our bodies. <laughs> Rachel, because she had a baby, me, because I just started eating everything and I became a slob. Um, but, you know, how her body changing affected her confidence in our relationship was uh, like the collateral damage, uh, uh, if that's a way to put it, was we like we had a dip intimacy wise. We just were not connecting because she was struggling to reconcile who she had been body image wise before this baby Jackson changed the way that she looked and felt. And that was something that we weren't as prepared for. And now, you know, like a lot, you know, a lot of years later and work and like a whole bunch of different stuff having happened, there's better perspective. But the more that you can have an honest conversation of, hey, this is going to be different. This is going to change. After the baby comes, you have to really, I think, um, talk about the kind of roles that each of you can and, and should play. Um, as a new mom, I write about this in my book, like I thought I knew the things that Rachel needed after she had our first son. And I can see now that I was putting weight on the wrong things. I got back to, I got back to work very, very quickly. I slept in a separate room and let her get on up with the old baby so I get my beauty rest. What a jerk I am. Uh, I, I, did, I did things that I thought were about what she needed, which was primarily focused on provision and what she needed was a partner. And so I, I can see now a thing I couldn't see then if we'd have been in a better conversation about her needs and how I might be able to afford her some relief, some supports, just like even if it was just listening or staying up, getting up with the baby, um, we, we just should have been in better conversation, uh, you know, as the baby was being born and in those first, you know, three months of time when things are the hardest. Um, so be in steady conversation, give yourself grace, right? Like you're not being focused on your relationship immediately after a baby happens to have been born is not a weird thing. That's a like survival by any means kind of uh, thing. So your relationship's probably going to take a, you know, a little bit of a backseat to the 
baby being kept alive and you getting as much sleep as you possibly can every single time that baby falls asleep. But then once you get into your routine, once certainly as the baby starts to sleep through the night, once, you know, once life starts to resume, it's probably going to feel a little bit strange for you to want to do some of the things that you used to do in your relationship. Some of it's hormonal, right? You just went through this crazy experience, a whole bunch of hormones in your body, hormones out of your body. You're dealing now with, um, you know, a different dynamic. Your family, especially if this is the first human that you've brought into your family, your family dynamic has changed. And some of the things that are pressures in your life are fundamentally different. The way that You both will think about how important your work is, um, just as a like, hey, I have to keep this family supported, or how important, how important almost anything is really changes when you have a kid. So we had to really be deliberate about our calendar. And, And part of that deliberateness was getting on that every single Thursday, we have a date night. And I can remember when Jackson was born, our first son, We went on a date night at about two months in. It might have been just a little bit younger, but it was tiny carrier car seat, very loud restaurant. And uh, we were exhausted. We were not interested in dating each other. We, there was no... uh, like, man, this date's going to be the thing that leads to a makeout sesh. There, nope, nope. This was about knowing that we wanted a relationship that prioritized us connecting and not having it be exclusively about this baby human that was militantly, just rudely keeping us awake at night. And so we started what, you know, 15 years later is a thing that we do every single Thursday night. We went out and sat at a restaurant to have a date. And it was like one of these restaurants where there were tablecloths. So uh, we slid Jackson into this like tablecloth cocoon of a loud restaurant where the buzz of everybody having a conversation actually had him sleep for a second. And then, of course, you have this panic like, don't sleep too long during dinner because we got to go home and you got to sleep through the night, even though like no month and a half, two month old baby is sleeping through the night. But anyway, um, we had to program it. We had to plan it. And when we did inevitably... uh, cross a threshold where um, post-baby mama was uh, in a position to say, you know what, I do want to be physically intimate with you again. That was was hard. That was not uh, an easy thing because, again, like life pre having had a baby and life post having had that first baby, um, things, parts, things felt different, including the way that she felt about herself. And uh, you know, it took it took us getting into a little bit of a rhythm. It took sometimes, to be honest, I know it's not sexy, us scheduling time to be physically intimate because, again, it was a priority for us in our relationship. And even if we weren't feeling it, we felt like maybe if we could jumpstart intimacy by planning it and having a little bit of momentum created around it just taking place, that maybe we'd get back into a groove. But uh, with all the things... It's just going to take a little bit of time, and I think you have to afford yourself a little bit of grace. Okay, next question. Does unconditional love mean having no expectations? No, 
I, I think that there certainly are expectations. Like, uh, I unconditionally love my wife, and I still have an expectation for respect. I unconditionally love my kids, and I, uh, you know, absolutely expect that they will behave. Like, um, un- like, un- like unconditional love, to me, my definition is that they can do, you know, they could do something that violates the expectation and you're still going to love them, but there will inevitably be consequences for them having violated your trust or broken a pact of how you've agreed that they're meant to show up in the relationship you have with them. So uh, I absolutely think that you need to have expectations in any relationship. Um, But then if you unconditionally love someone and they make a mistake, and guess what, since they're human, they're going to make a mistake, um, that you choose to love them, but also if they need to express contrition, if they need to go to therapy, if they have to go to rehab, if they have to do something, um, that you um, you know participate with helping them get the help that they need to be right in the way that you know you'd expect them to. You know, have, ha- having standards or expectations in a relationship is, I think, a part of a healthy, healthy relationship. Okay, next question. How do you feel about ex-partners staying friends after a relationship? Huh. Uh, It really depends. (laughs) It really, really depends. Uh, For the most part, I, like we have, we, I'll, I'll start with this. It's not the question being asked, but Rachel and I have developed rules around how we, if we're not together, interact with people of the opposite sex. When we travel, if it's, you know, after a certain time of night, if alcohol is being served, if like a whole bunch of ifs, uh, there are just some rules around whether or not we would put ourselves in situations where well-intended people make bad mistake choices, right? Uh, I don't think that most people, most of the time, I I just like to believe this, and maybe it's naive of me, but I don't think most of the people, most of the time, who find themselves in a position where infidelity is being introduced, walked into the situation and were like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to throw my marriage away. I am going to make my kids wonder why I'm such a bastard. Like, I just don't think, I don't think people do that. Uh, I think what people do more often, guess what? I'm sure plenty of people do that. I am naive. But I think what happens, though, is that there are situations where people of the opposite sex are found in, you know, whether it's uh, the right environment or wrong environment, the, like, the, the conditions have been primed because of alcohol, the energy because of the work environment, the like, whatever is now introducing the possibility of a bad decision to come about. And I think that same kind of thing is the, 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 the it's, it's what can happen when an ex is a thing in your life. Uh, I don't, you know, like, do I think that now your husband or your wife is like, you know what, I really, you know, things didn't work out with that person. What feels right in my marriage is getting back with that person that things didn't work out with. But 
uh, I'm not sure that I would put myself in a situation where being, you know, like in a texting relationship or a social media relationship or a phone relationship or, you know, an in-person relationship is a thing that I'd want. Not like, even if their intentions were good, why, like, why? And I think the, the other piece is, if you're asking this question, I am going to deduce that you, question asker, have some reservations about your partner remaining friends with his or her ex. That should be in and of itself reason to not remain friends. Um, and, and maybe that's callous, you know, oh, you got to cut out ex-boyfriends or girlfriends. But if it comes down to who I got to pick sitting with me in that foxhole when life gets rough, I'm going to pick you, my wife, my partner over, uh, and maybe this is a boyfriend-girlfriend situation, but even in a boyfriend-girlfriend situation, if it's serious, if, you, if, if you're in love, if you're committed, uh, I don't, you know, I just I struggle to think that you might prioritize the want for friendship with an ex over the trust and respect of the current person in the relationship. That's just me. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. How can I tell if I'm in love? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think it feels a little bit like gas. No, I'm kidding. Uh, how can you tell if you're in love? It's a hard thing to really put your finger on, but when you are in love, I think you know. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, I've had this question before, how do you know if this person is the one? And I think my answer to how do you know if this person is the one is the same as the how do you know if this person is someone that you love. Uh, Rachel and I actively choose that we are in love, that we, that she is the one for me, that I am the one for her every single day. Uh, not to say that like love ain't a thing that you can build a house on, like, man, there's a foundation there. But love also, I can say this after 15 years of marriage, is an active, everyday choice. I am choosing to be in love with my partner because life, because time, because it's a thing that when I activate it, it makes me ask better questions about what else in my life and this relationship need to be true if it is true. And so um, if you, in thinking that you're in love, have other things that are activated because of that choice, the way that you want to show up, the way that you want to show respect, the way that you want to spend time, the way that you, like that to me, those are the breadcrumbs for um, you know, really answering that question. And um, the feeling that you have now, awesome. Like you need to be compatible with and, and have affection for and love for the person that you are courting. It's a thing that you are going to actively pursue on an every single day basis if you want to have an exceptional relationship. Uh, okay, 
Another question. My husband and I have been married a little over two years and are thinking of starting a family soon. What are some of the things you wish you'd have done in your marriage prior to having children? And in what ways did your relationship change after having kids that you didn't expect? Well, I wish, uh, here's the thing, if we had waited to have children, we would not have the children that we have. So I'm happy for all the things happening exactly as they did. But uh, you guys have been married for two years. And if I were able to travel back to our having been married two years self before we started having kids, I'd have said, don't you have those kids yet? You haven't traveled enough. You haven't slept in enough. You haven't been able to become a couple that has established their identity enough yet. Uh, kids are amazing. And I love all of our children. And, uh, and I'm grateful for the fact that we could have kids. I'm grateful for the impossibly hard journey that it was to adopt Noah. I'm grateful for the foster children that we had when we had foster kids. But all of them, and, and of course this is the case, were um, things that came and changed the dynamic of what we were before they were a part of our life. And so like the more that you can savor the time that you have, just the two of you, uh, the stronger you'll be for what the addition of a child ends up being in your life. And, um, and I don't like, I don't want to like say that without acknowledging, I know there are people right now listening to this that are trying so stinking hard to have a kid. And, uh, the idea that I'd suggest that you spend more time with your partner maybe sounds, um, callous and, 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 and I don't want it to sound that way at all. Cause man, I want to honor your journey in this as well. Um, so anyway, I, I think the what I wish uh, I would have known or, or the, the way that the relationship changed, the relationship changed in every way, uh, in, 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 in mostly really, really great ways. But the way that we were able to indulge in us was different after a child comes because you you know you, you just don't have that and so being prepared for what it will mean to have new responsibility and you know your sleep being different and the way that you think or feel about your body, if you're, you know, blessed to be able to carry a baby, like all of those things end up being a little bit of a game changer for how having kids, you know, will inevitably throw a little bit of a wrench in kind of who you are and how you are. Um, it's, I mean, it's so funny. In real time, I've got kids that are alternating stage play practice, baseball practice, and Cub Scouts. I mean, like, I have basically become the person who's carpooling to, like, two events a night on an any given night. And, like, there was a version of me that didn't do that before we had humans that were small. Um, God, it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm not complaining. I love driving these kids around. I'm also looking at a countdown clock on my phone that uh, is alerting me to the fact that the last of them will be out of our house in 15 years and four months. I mean, here's the thing, you guys. Y'all sent so many stinking questions. I mean, I have so many more that I'm going to have to split this up into another episode, and I'm going to keep on answering them 
at some future. Ask Dave, ask the male Hollis human any question. I really appreciate every single one of you who uh, sent in a question. If you didn't hear yours, guess what? It may in fact be on an upcoming episode. So uh, thank you for listening in. Hopefully, uh, some of this was helpful, uh, fun, informative, maybe provoked a little bit of a conversation amongst you and your partner. Listen, like I said, I'm no expert, uh, but I do hope that last piece is the thing I hope the most. If the question that was asked here, in my answering it in some way, either affirmed or challenged the way you think about that topic, have a conversation with your partner about it. Turn it into an opportunity to actually understand how they feel about what they would do in answering this question, what they would say in answering this question. Uh, if you like this episode, I would encourage you to take a screenshot of the very thing that you are listening to and put it up on the internet. Uh, let people know about it. Tag me, Mr. Dave Hollis. Tag Rachel. She's not here, but man, tag her anyway, Ms. Rachel Hollis. And uh, use the hashtag Rise Together Podcast. I appreciate so much that y'all have listened to this show. And I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Rise Together next week.